Why do so many Christians seem so haggard and frazzled? I saw a cartoon that pictured a man in a suit standing in the subway with one hand holding onto the pole. He is very weary looking. His jowls hang down on his face. He has bags under his eyes. His shoulders droop and his eyelids are heavy. A lady who is seated nearby apparently offered him a seat because the caption reads, No, ma'am, I'm not ill. I'm just a pastor. But it's not just pastors who have that weary look. We could apply that cartoon to many Christians in our churches. We, of all people, should be enjoying life to its fullest, yet we look like death warmed over, overwhelmed by our burdens in life. It's Jesus who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We start out like the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress at the foot of the cross. The great weight of sin that we have carried around on our shoulders disappears. We start down the path of life with joy and enthusiasm. Yet we begin picking up new burdens to carry, and soon we are as weighed down as before. We even talk about our faith in weary terms. We say things like, I have a burden from the Lord which I would like to share with you. No wonder that non-Christians look at us and say, forget it. You're not coping with life any better than me. Why should I exchange one set of burdens for another? What has happened? We have forgotten how we became Christians. We have forgotten how we were born into this heavenly family. It was by grace through faith that we left that load of guilt at the cross. And it is by grace through faith that we must drop the load now. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, If we are born by faith, then we must live by faith. Christianity is not the substitution of a new set of burdens for the old set of burdens. It is not replacing an old guilt with a new guilt, a past performance mentality with a new performance mentality. We live by grace through faith because we became Christians by grace through faith. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds us that we are born by faith. You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Paul calls the Galatians foolish twice in this passage, once here and again in verse 3. The word foolish does not mean someone who is mentally deficient or stupid. 
The word refers to someone who is unreasonable and unperceptive. Foolish people are easily manipulated by influence peddlers. Why are Christians so gullible? Why are we so easily manipulated by the hucksters of this world? Many believers surrender to false reasoning far too easily and often. It's the bewitching of believers. Believers seem highly susceptible to the power of conspiracy theories with their emphasis on secret knowledge and inside information. Outrage fills the airwaves. Political manipulation and marketing schemes lure too many Christians under the power of the evil eye. We seem especially susceptible to the power of abusive spiritual authority, demonstrated by the long list of authoritarian pastors in recent years. When Paul calls the Galatians foolish, he might be thinking of them as childlike in their simple-mindedness. They struggle to resist the bewitching of the false teachers because they are easily distracted, like little children attracted to the latest flashing lights and sparkling toys. Foolish Christians are so busy chasing the idols of our world that they lose sight of the truth of the gospel. Too often, we become caught up in political battles, social quarrels, and personal arguments that have no eternal value. We focus on buildings and programs and culture wars while losing the gospel's centrality to our mission. The result is that we lose sight of Christ in the pursuit of the bangles and baubles that dangle before our eyes. Paul raises two questions to jolt us out of the foolishness of false reasoning and spiritual distractions. Question number one, who has bewitched you? Verse one, who has bewitched you? The word translated bewitched conjures up the popular superstition about the power of the evil eye in the first century folklore. Many writers close their letters by wishing the reader protection from the evil eye. One superstition su suggested that a person could ward off the influence of the evil eye by spitting three times. Spells and incantations could fascinate a person so powerfully that they were brought under the control of the bewitcher. But Paul is not talking about literal witchcraft here. He used the word bewitched as a metaphor for how people can harm us through their words. The word is never used for the magical powers of the supernatural world. It is a figure of speech for the power of words to influence others. The power of praise and insult, flattery and shame could harm people just as much as black magic. Even hostile looks or the sound of the voice can control others in a bewitching manner. Paul is so shocked because the Christians were so easily deluded and deceived by this mixture of law and grace. He is so shocked that he suggests that they have been put under somebody's spell. They've come under the evil eye. 
They've been captivated by false doctrine, and it is ruining their spiritual lives. Paul goes on to speak about how Christ was publicly portrayed before them as crucified. The expression that Paul uses here was used for government officials who posted public notices and official declarations where everybody could see them. Paul preached Christ crucified as if he placarded the message on a giant billboard for everyone to see. Paul billboarded Christ as having been crucified for them. He stressed the foundational fact of Christ's crucifixion. It was a past act. It was a finished task. Christianity is based on what Christ did for us in the past, not what we do for him in the present. We proclaim to the world a finished fact, not a possible present or a wishful future. The gospel billboard announces that the work is done. How can we turn our backs on such a wonderful truth? My friends, we turn our backs on the gospel billboard every time we dredge up sins from our past which Christ dealt with on the cross. You repented. You received forgiveness. So don't load up with the guilt all over again. If you think you are not good enough for God and you have failed so badly that God cannot forgive you, then you are being foolish, my friends. Christ has paid for your sins. You can never be good enough for God, but you can accept his, his goodness for you. Don't put yourself back under the burden of performance Christianity. I put my faith in Jesus Christ when I was six years old in my bedroom with my father explaining salvation to me. Yet that did not stop my doubts and fears. My parents were missionaries in Pakistan, and I left home for a boarding school 600 miles away from them when I was six years old. During those years, I struggled with fear and doubt. When we would attend various evangelistic or revival meetings, even into my early teen years, I would raise my hand for salvation because I wanted to make sure I had to have my devotions morning and evening, or else I thought God would be displeased with me. If I did anything wrong, I suffered guilt for days on end. My friends, these were the feelings of someone who had been bewitched by law-keeping performance-oriented Christianity. I had forgotten that salvation was by grace through faith. The result was a miserable, works-driven Christianity. I was always trying to be good enough for God. Now Paul asks a second question. How did you get the Spirit? Verse 2. How did you get the Spirit? When you are living in that state of mind, there is only one thing you need to do. Think back to your conversion. Consider how you came to Christ. The decisive question that defines the Christian life is this. Do, do you receive the Spirit of God by what you do 
or trusting what he does, do you receive the Spirit of God by what you do or by trusting what he does? The gift of the Holy Spirit came at conversion. Theologically, two things happen to every person when they put their faith in Christ. The first thing that happens is justification. Justification is God's declaration that you are righteous on the basis that Christ paid the penalty for your sin. The second thing that happens at conversion is called regeneration. Regeneration means that you are given a new life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way to be regenerate is to have the Holy Spirit take up residence in you because he is the one who gives you new life, eternal life. The moment that you are justified, you are also regenerated and the Holy Spirit permanently lives in you from that day on. You cannot get rid of him, but you can grieve him. This teaching is crucial to remember. We never receive the Spirit living in us and regenerating us with eternal life. We never receive that Spirit by what we did for God. The only way to ever have the Spirit of God is by accepting the message of God by faith in God. When you trust Christ for salvation, you are also trusting the Holy Spirit to come and live in you. My friends, you only got him by faith in the first place, so you can only live by faith in the last place. Only God can finish what only God can start. This is just basic Christian theology. The point Paul is developing in Galatians 3 is that if we are born by faith, we must live by faith. We are born by faith, Paul tells us. So in verses 3 through 6, we live by faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Have you lost your passion for the Lord? Do you no longer have a sense of joy in Christ? Is Christianity a burden for you? Do you enjoy God or fear him? Has duty and obligation become the focus of your spiritual life? Do you serve God out of guilt? Is your life dominated by perfectionism and a performance mentality? If you answered yes to many of those diagnostic questions, then I think I can say that one reason for your feelings may be because you have stopped living the way you were born, by faith. You have reverted to law and the guilt which law brings 
as your means of gaining God's approval. Paul tells us that if we are born by faith, then we must live by faith. And there are four little principles which I would like to point out concerning what it means to live by faith. First, in verse 3, conversion determines completion. Conversion determines completion. If you began your Christian life by the Spirit, why are you trying to live it by the flesh? There is a double equation between verse 3 and verse 2. Flesh corresponds to the works of the law, and spirit corresponds to hearing with faith in verse 2. If you began your Christian life trusting in what God the Holy Spirit did for you, why are you trying to live the Christian life by what you do for God? The the word perfected is very important. It means completion or maturity. The Greek construction used here indicates that this is an ongoing process. Christian maturity doesn't happen overnight. The Greek construction also indicates that the person is trying to perfect himself by his own measurements and standards. Whenever you try to complete your Christian life by works, that is by your ability to do things for God, then you will enslave yourself to the law. You will be miserable. You cannot live this way because you were not born this way. The Christian life is lived by faith in his ability to produce life in me. That's why Paul could use the same words over in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, where he writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, complete it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Our confidence must be in the Lord, not in ourselves, which means that we live by faith in him, not by faith in ourselves. Do you share Paul's confidence by faith? Well, let's get practical. Conversion does not make you an Albert Einstein or a LeBron James. We have some strange ideas about the Christian life. We think that God is going to change our whole personality and give us talents and abilities that will make others think how great we are. No, that does not happen, my friends. God does not make you into something that you are not as far as your natural abilities and personality. God does not transform our IQs so that we suddenly qualify for Mensa when we become Christians. To paraphrase John Ortberg, conversion seems to respect the raw materials we start with. It might turn a Saul into Paul or a Simon into Peter. It's not likely to turn a Tim Allen into Thomas Aquinas. So we must beware of unrealistic expectations about salvation, or we doom ourselves to great disappointment with God. God implants his Holy Spirit in us at conversion, and he begins the process of developing Christ-likeness in us. 
The transformation is about character, not looks, not abilities or talents. God will use our natural abilities, looks, and personalities, our raw materials, for his purpose as he changes our character into Christ-like character. Perfection or completion in this transforming process comes the same way that the birth came by the Spirit of God through faith. We were born again by faith, so we must not try to live by works. Why start with one and end with another? That's foolishness. So conversion determines completion in verse 3, and experience demonstrates value in verse 4. Here Paul raises his fourth of five questions in the Galatians 3 verses 1 through 5. These questions are designed to drive the people back to their roots in Christ. And this fourth question is, did you suffer in vain? The word translated suffer can mean to suffer persecution, but there's no evidence in the New Testament of the Galatians suffering persecution at this time. The Greek word generally means to experience something that comes upon us from outside ourselves, which we experience passively, like sickness or a calamity or misfortune. The basic sense of the word is negative. We experience something bad. We suffer. Unless the context makes it clear that the experience is good. However, in certain contexts, the word is used in a good sense to experience something favorable. And there is some evidence in the following verses that Paul is talking about their positive spiritual experiences that demonstrated the power of the Spirit in their lives. Paul would be then saying something like, Have you had such remarkable experiences in vain? I think the word is used here in, in a general sense to experience all manner of circumstances that come upon us from outside ourselves. These circumstances are often not pleasant, but in the end yield results that are positive as God works out his plans in our lives, according to Romans 8.28. We suffer in this life, but not all suffering is persecution. In fact, most suffering is not. We often go through bad experiences, but God has provided his spirit to empower us through those experiences. To forget those past experiences when we face our present circumstances is pointless. It is in vain. It makes for an empty life, Paul tells us. Don't waste your past. God wants to use your past in the present. Remember those times, both the dark times and the bright times, as times when God's Spirit faithfully provided all we needed to get through our circumstances. Remembering the past is not pointless when we remember God's presence with us and God's power that helped us in the past. If you compromise your faith now, you compromise all that you have experienced in Christ up until now. So don't 
waste your past. My friends, if you have lived with Jesus for any length of time, you have seen him be faithful to you in the past. So don't throw it all away now to try to earn it for yourself. When you say, I've got to get my life straightened out before I come back to the Lord, then you are only throwing away all that you have experienced with him in the past. Your past experiences are in vain. Come back to Jesus. Let him help you now to live by faith. Don't try to do it by yourself, because power comes by faith, verse 5. The power, the ability to live the Christian life, comes from the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us, whom we receive by faith, not by works. The words provides and works miracles are words which imply that this is an ongoing experience in the Christian life. The word translated works is the word we get our English word energy from. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 12 when Paul speaks of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Galatians did not just look back to one time when God's power was evident in their lives through miracles or gifts of the Spirit. They see these manifestations of the Holy Spirit continuing throughout their lives. It's not that everyone personally experiences miracles on a regular basis, for then they would cease to be miracles. They would be common. Rather, it is that they could see God at work in the life of the church as a whole in supernatural ways in the past. Make no mistake about it. God is still in the miracle-working business today. The Spirit of God is still enabling and empowering his church to live for him today. How does he do it? One way that God does it is through the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is an important difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Once you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. He indwells you, and you cannot get rid of him. You are a whole new person, whether you feel like it or not. However, the filling of the Holy Spirit is necessary for service. The filling of the Spirit is a repeated and repeatable experience. The filling means that we give him control of our lives to use as he sees fit. This must be done on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. The filling of the Spirit provides the power for living like Christ. It is critical that we keep these two theological truths clear and separate, or we will be miserable by confusing our regeneration by the Spirit, that is our new life in Christ, with the filling of a Spirit, which is the power to live that new life. Both come by faith. We are born by faith, and we live by faith. When I enter those periods of time when God seems far away, and I don't sense his presence or his power in my life, 
It has to do with the filling, not the regenerating of the Spirit. He still lives in me, but he's not filling me with his presence. And if you confuse those two theological truths, you will think that you have lost your salvation. You will doubt your faith, my friends. Finally, faith results in righteousness, verse 6. Faith results in righteousness. Faith, not works, results in righteousness. Abraham believed God. That's an act of faith. But that faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is justification. The word for reckon means calculate or to place on one's account. When we trust Christ, we put faith on our accounts payable, and he puts righteousness on our accounts receivable. He credits us with righteousness solely on the basis of our faith in him. Our righteousness is dependent upon him, not on us. We cannot credit ourselves with righteousness. Only he can do it. Every time you try to be good enough for God, you are trying to credit yourself with righteousness, and it doesn't work. We must understand the nature of faith to see that faith is not meritorious. It does not earn you points. God's calculation of righteousness in response to faith is an act of grace and not based on any merit. What is faith? Faith is a total reliance on and complete confidence in God. So faith in God, by definition, is the opposite of all human achievements. Faith is the negation of any work that we might do to gain the righteousness that God gives. Faith is a confidence in God, a persuasion that he can do what he says. It is a confidence in God that repudiates any confidence in self. Therefore, faith is not meritorious. Some people give the impression that you must have a strong faith, and the reason you fail is because you have a weak faith. My friends, weak faith in a strong plank will get you across the raging river, but strong faith in a weak plank will end up destroying you. It is the object of your faith, not the amount of your faith, that is the issue. All you have to have is enough faith to step out on the plank, to trust the plank even a little, because it is the plank that matters. It is the plank that gets you across the raging river. It is Christ that matters, not the amount of your faith. The strength of our faith does not determine the amount of our righteousness. Heaven's exchange rate is built on grace. Even a weak faith in a strong God is exchanged for perfect righteousness on Christ's account. Therefore, trade your self-reliance for God-reliance and exchange your self-righteousness for Christ's righteousness. There will always be those Christians who try to shortcut their way into spirituality. Some will tell you, 
that they have the set of secrets you need to be good with God. One writer tells about how he once drove for miles to hear a speaker talk about the 21 secrets for ridding your life of every evil habit. He even bought the speaker's book, and he took a correspondence course. They sent him a graduation diploma for ridding his life of bad habits. Later, he learned that the speaker died of liver failure at the age of 51. He was a lifelong alcoholic. Friends, Christianity is a relationship, not a set of religious rules or secrets that will make you good with God. Someone might say, you have to spend lots of time alone with God to be spiritual. My answer is that the minute you leave me alone, I'm alone with God. I have learned a great secret in life. I have learned to enjoy Jesus. I do not have to have special devotions or get away to some secret place to enjoy Jesus. I do not have to be in a church building to enjoy Jesus. I can enjoy Jesus wherever I am and whenever I want to by faith. Some days I spend many hours in the study of the Bible, and other days I don't open it at all. But every day, from the time I open my eyes to the time I close them at night, I enjoy Jesus. I start talking with Jesus before I get out of bed in the morning, and he is the last one I talk to before going to sleep at night. So what do we talk about? Everything, just like friends do. Whatever happens to be going on is a topic for talking with Jesus. If I am driving along and somebody cuts me off, I say, Lord, did you see that guy? Man, that really ticks me off, Lord. If I am angry with God about something, I tell him. If I am sad, I tell him that too. I particularly enjoy my time in the car because people can't interrupt my conversations with Jesus. I learned a long time ago to turn the radio off and talk to him. Prayer is not some sanctified holy talk which must be done by certain rules. Life is not a set of special secrets that unlock the door to super spirituality. Prayer is the expression of a living faith. It is life with Jesus. It is conversation with him about whatever I want to talk about because he cares about what I care about. And I learn to care about what he cares about. I trust Jesus to love me no matter how ugly I might be. That is living by faith, my friends. Since we are born by faith, we must live by faith. The Christian life is a family relationship with God, not a set of religious rules for spirituality. Are you worn out and frazzled carrying your load of fear, anger, guilt, and frustration? Drop it at the cross. Only when you come to the end of your self-effort will you be able to enjoy the Spirit's power in your life. If you are ever going to enjoy your Christian life, you must trust Him for every bit of it.
You don't have to have a lot of faith, just enough to make it through your day, or even that minute sometimes. Living by faith is the way you enjoy Jesus. Jesus.